Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This here is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the bacon to my eggs, Brandon. Wait, are you calling me bacon like <laughs> as an insult? Because wait, know. are you? You're not. I don't think you're an Orthodox Jew. No, 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 not at all. Let's just you're you know. bacon. You're bacon eater. I think I am a bacon eater. I love bacon. <laughs> who, who who doesn't love bacon that can eat? Orthodox bacon? Jews. That's, that's who that does not bacon. love bacon. Yep, that's my caveat. <laughs> How you doing, Tony? Also observant Muslims, I'd say. Yeah, no bacon. Yeah, I'm a big bacon fan. I'm doing great. Uh, doing really great. Yeah. Uh, what? What? Uh, I I rented a lawn aerator, which I do about every three years, and so my lawn is full of those little plugs of dirt. And but the lawn, the 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 Minnesota drought this year was rough on my lawn. Yeah. It was it was it was rough on the place I live at too. It's a uh, we've it's talked about that before. Yeah, you barely had to mow, right? Yeah, I think I mowed like twice the whole summer. Yeah, I just I really want to plow the whole thing under and plant pollinators and wildflowers. So anyway, I'm looking into that. But I for the time people, being, now I'm working on the lawn. Well, more people should do that. I think that's I, I always like when I uh, walk by or drive by places that do that. It it's just better for the environment. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and what else that, you know, we're, we're looking at, we're, we're looking at duck, uh, duck opener this Saturday coming up. So I'm heading up North Friday, gonna do some grouse hunting with my dog Crosby and do some duck hunting. And we're pulling the boats out of the lake, taking out the docks that time of year, man. Wow. That means fall is right around the corner. Just right I'm all right with that. Okay. I like fall. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fall fan. I'm a big fall fan. Uh, we're pretty excited that we've got a, a new sponsor, Grain Bell Premium Beer, and their limited edition hunting camel pack. Uh, so you'll hear a little spot for that before we go to our conversation. But many thanks to Grain Belt. Uh, I'm a big fan of Grain Belt. We drink a lot of it at the cabin, actually. And my dad, uh, his the last... The last company he worked at in his career, his office was at the old Grain Belt Brewery. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, we would go in there a lot, and it's it's a very cool old limestone building in Northeast Minneapolis. I'm sure you've driven by it a hundred times, but absolutely, uh, yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool deal. And I'd also give a shout out to a couple other products that have gifted me with some free gear. Uh, one is Iverson Duck Calls. And they make incredibly beautiful, like the kind of duck call you hand, you you hand down to to your kid or your grandkid. You know, it's not a plastic thing you buy at Cabela's. It's like a handmade by uh, you know one or two guys in their garage, and they've been making them for decades. Uh, and ironclad gloves have uh, gifted me with a bunch of free gear, and I love their gloves for. I use their gloves for hunting and for. Um, also for work, a lot of work at the, up at the cabin and stuff like that. I was wearing a pair of ironclad gloves when I was driving that, uh, lawn aerator actually. So give a little shout out to that, but a huge shout out to green belt premium beer. Um, Hey Brandon, have you ever, uh, parachuted onto the side of a mountain in the middle of a forest fire? Well, I mean, other than what I was doing last weekend, no, no, I have not. I've never, I, I don't even know if I have the guts to parachute out of a plane as a whole. Yeah, I don't plan to ever jump out of a plane, much less onto the side of a mountain where you go tumbling down 
and hope your parachute gets, you know, hooked on something to arrest your fall. But that's exactly what our guest on the Reverend Hunter podcast did for his career. He was a smoke jumper as well as having several other wildfire fighting responsibilities with the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, Timo Rova lives up in the Duluth area. He is a longtime Minnesotan, but he's been all over the Western United States to some just incredible places. Um, He comes from a family of Lutheran pastors. He's a spiritual guy. Uh, And I just thought, you know, one of the fun things about doing this podcast is getting the opportunity to speak to people who've done stuff that I will never do. And this is right at the top of that list because... Man, this guy, he he did some very cool stuff, and it was a great conversation. I uh, I actually had a – it was really cool for me. I just watched a documentary about some of these smoke jumpers a few weeks ago. So actually hearing firsthand from somebody that does this is uh, – it's really cool. It's really unreal. It's just just hearing about the way him and his uh, coworkers just – they got along and how mm-hmm. a meal was so important to them. It was mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. cool to yeah, grizzly bears walking through their camp. And I mean, yeah, incredible. Anyways, I won't spoil it anymore. I'll let you listen to it yourself. You can find him on Instagram. I think it's, uh, we'll have the, you know, his his handle is, will be in the show notes, but it's Rovatimo. It's just his last name, then his first name. Uh, but yeah, great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share. And uh, you will hear my conversation with Timo right after this from our new sponsor, Grain Belt Premium Beer and their limited edition hunting camel pack. Thank you for listening. The wild is calling. Answer your thirst for adventure with Grain Belt Premium Beer. Bring the Grain Belt to the outdoors with their limited edition premium hunting season pack. It's available anywhere you can find premium 12-pack cans of Grain Belt. Hey, Timo, I want to thank you for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Uh, how does a guy who's basically, it sounds like pretty much everybody in your family is a Lutheran pastor except you. So how'd you avoid that fate, man? Uh, I was bad at school. I was uh, dyslexic and ADHD. And so I think that's how I got rid of it. I don't think they wanted me, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I wanted to go have a lot of fun having adventures. Uh, when I was a young kid, I kind of went on a mission trip through our, our church. And, you know, there, I kind of, you know, a little kid thing. I said, oh, I'll go be a missionary as long as I can have a lot of adventure. Kind of was a little, you know, ninth grade pack mm-hmm. you made with God, which isn't what you do. But, you know, I kind of <laughs> did that. Like the main thing I want is a lot of adventure and I'll, maybe I could do it that way. I don't want to be a pastor. Maybe I could be like, go to Africa or the Arctic or, cause I just knew I wanted to go have a lot of time in the woods, have adventures, see things, meet people that are woods people or of the land. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the difference. That's what it, I feel was my calling. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Minneapolis proper, right down by Lake Nokomis and uh, Minnehaha Creek, Lake Hiawatha, mm-hmm. Southeast Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, mom became a Lutheran pastor. My dad was an architect. He's a Finn from Ely and 
they had moved around some and they lived right on the park, right on the lake and a little 1920s house. And every weekend we'd go to either the farm or up to Ely. And uh, that's where I grew up. Did your family keep, was that a farm you visited when you were growing up? Yeah. My grandma lived down there. Um, okay. Southwestern Minnesota, Watton County. Um, my mom's a Swede from down there. Oh, uh, a Swede and a Finn got married. It was a. It was a. Back then, that's that was contra- a big deal. That's controversial, you know? bro. That's con. Yeah. And now they're like within three hundred miles of each other. The families are, you know, and you're like, uh-huh. what? What's up? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because I have, I come from Norwegian Welsh people from southwestern Minnesota, and um, the Welsh they they were probably similar. They they all settled very close to each other in a little place called Judson Township. You know, and my great great grandfather was a Welsh Presbyterian Methodist minister who who conducted his services in welsh wow. at the turn of the at the turn of the 20th century yeah so i'm sure you know you're isn't it funny though that what what that was like those little enclaves uh, those little ethnic enclaves so when you were growing up how you know what what was that how did those two cultures mix for you well they didn't really mix much we went to one side or the other um you know, at Christmas, some would get together, but like Christmas Eve was celebrated with my mom's side and Christmas Day was with my dad's out in the western suburbs. And, uh, you know, they knew of each other, but we didn't really mix. My my dad's side wasn't really religious or church going very much. And my mom's side was incredibly so. And mm. they're from different ends of the state, one the very northeast, one the far southwest so um you know we didn't really do things <laughs> the rovas and the the renbergs didn't do a lot together or the warners okay you know? <clears throat> okay so the lutheran pastors come from the swedish side right right okay yeah right. no my uh the finnish side they weren't and if they did go to church back in finland my relatives my dad has first cousins and everything back there they were kind of uh, up in Lapland, and they were like Lestadian or apostolic, kind of more the mystical, Sami reindeer herder type variation of Lutheranism up there. Really? Now, that yeah. would be fascinating, I think. Have you done any kind of research on that or know anything about it? I have done some, and my brothers have done a lot more. Um, you know, it's very... Um, it mix, it's very mystical. You know, there's a lot of chanting and swaying in the old church. And um, Lars Levi Lestadius is the guy who kind of broke away from the Swedish Lutheran church and started a, another kind of senate up there that honored the native people and their language and that, the Sami, the Laplanders. And so, wow, yeah, it has some more of that kind of, bent to it so that's incredible have you been there or or participated in that form of worship or anything like that do you have any firsthand experience with it 
I don't. I've thought of hmm. doing it. There's a few of those churches up around where I live and, you know, I've had second cousins and that who are, but no, I guess, I guess I haven't. And even when I was in Montana living, there were a couple of uh, areas where that's where the Finns were and they were Lestadians. They have large families, usually, you know, seven to 12 kids, um, a lot of trades, a little farm, um, you know, it's hmm. kind of, it's a lot different than the other Lutheran church. So, and it's called Lestadians. I've never heard yeah. of this before. I'm going to do some research on this, Timo. That's, that yeah. sounds fascinating to me. A mystical Finnish Lutheran group, man. I, I've never heard of anything like that before. And it goes across all three countries, Norway, Sweden, and Finland up in the very Northern okay. part, because when it was created, Sweden kind of governed that whole area. And uh-huh. um, and they kind of broke away. And, oh, they're very temperance-minded because they're having a lot of drinking uh-huh. problems up with the, the native populations of Sami up there. So one of their tenets is abstinence from alcohol. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. I'm, um, suddenly, I'm suddenly a little bit less interested. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, well, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure. There, but you can you I'm can kidding. understand when a population. Has- yeah. Oh my gosh! I uh, yeah I I lived on um, a Lakota reservation in South Dakota for a couple summers, and I did see the ravages of alcoholism in that population. Really tragic. So, yeah, I completely understand that. Well, I, you know, I'm I'm so interested in talking to you because of your career, which I know you're now kind of semi-retired from, but, um, you know, with, with everything that happened this summer in the West, uh, with the, with the forest fires and the wildfires, and then, um, it, it happened, obviously it got even closer to home. I mean, it was interesting and here in June, we're, you know, complaining about the fires out West and the hazy sunshine every day and the smoke in the air. But, um, you know, by late July, suddenly our, you know, it, the Quetico's on fire and then it's, then suddenly the Boundary Waters is on fire. And, and as listeners of this podcast have already heard, I had to cancel a trip. Um, you know, Boundary Waters was closed for two weeks. I canceled the trip. I was supposed to guide, uh, six pastors from Florida and North Carolina into the Boundary Waters, had to pull the plug on that, which has not happened in 45 years that they've closed the whole boundary waters. So I just think, I mean, I'm, I am super interested in hearing from somebody who's so firsthand with wildfire. And I think probably a lot of listeners are too, because it's something we probably don't think much about or haven't for many, many years. I mean, it, it's an occasional thing like an earthquake or, I don't know, a hurricane or something, but now it seems to be an annual affair. Um, so, I mean, to start with, how did you get into that business and what was it like at the beginning of your career? Okay, well, I knew I wanted to have adventure, work outdoors, and I went and worked at a, a Lutheran camp on the end of the Gunflint Trail on Seagull Lake called Wilderness Canoe uh-huh. Base. And we'd take oh, kids yeah, out it. into the wilderness and, uh, you know, uh, inner city kids, youth groups, uh, women's groups, whatever. And it was so fun. I loved it. Worked with some great people. 
and I was starting a, a young family. I got married a little bit younger than a lot of people my age. And I realized I can't make money and support my family doing this. And I'm like, what can I do? And uh, how am I going to make this work? And this is in the 80s. And 80s were kind of tough for finding work. And um, my dad had bought fires. And so I had my grandpa with the Forest Service up in out of Ely. And I was raised on their stories. And I love stories. Stories, I think, mm. are one of the greatest things about our hunting and our fishing and our firefighting and is the stories, getting around a fire and, and listening to them or at night as a family or something. And so they really impacted me hearing about my dad flying in in a float plane to fight a fire on Fraser Lake or up on Crooked when he was a young man. And my grandpa in 1918 going and fighting one up by Isabella, being conscripted more or less. And um, Wow. Uh, so I thought, oh, that'd be neat. And then I had done a little bit of it when I was at the camp. They had come and hired us and for three days here and five days there. And I got a little bit of basic training to go do it. And back then, that was all you needed. Hmm. And so I read an article by a guy named Pete Leschek about smoke chasing. And so you know, I was with the Minnesota DNR. And I was living in Duluth at the time. So I went to the local DNR office and said, hey, I read about this. Could I smoke chase? And they said, sure, they needed it. And so I started doing it seasonally with the DNR in Minnesota. And they would send me out okay. west on a crew during the summer for like 21 days in a row. And I'd come back and I was like, boy, I love this. And, you know, in the winter, I'd be a janitor at UMD or whatever, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And so you're, time, so you're in your you're in your 20s at the time? Yeah, early 20s. So my parents wanted me to be a teacher. They're like, you know, that'll give you summers off and you can do stuff and that's a good career. But that wasn't ringing true within me. And so I, uh, we moved to Southern California. Um, my wife got a teaching job there. She was a teacher. And I ended up getting a job with the Forest Service down in Southern California. I was a type one firefighter and a engine crew person. And that, after a couple of years of great experience there, I went to Alaska and I worked up there. Mm. And I was a type one and a, what's called a fire suppression specialist. And then from there, I went to smoke jumping in Montana at West Yellowstone. Okay. And I got a ton of I got a ton of questions already. So can okay. I break in and just ask sure. you for the sake yeah. of me and the listeners? Okay, first of all, when you started um, smoke chasing in Minnesota, what what kind of I mean, they, you said they gave you almost no training. What kind of gear did they give you? Like, what you what what were you using at the time? Was it kind of primitive stuff or was it pretty advanced? It was pretty primitive. I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. But, uh, you know, we wore jeans. We didn't even have oh. fire pants. We wore jeans. We had a fire shirt, a helmet, a pair of gloves, and a pair of goggles. And you brought wow. your own jeans and T-shirt and boots. And, uh, and it was pretty intermittent. They didn't guarantee work. But I was very eager, and they ended up just using me a ton. They more or less guaranteed me work in cloquet in the spring and fall. And then, when, when I, yeah, when they, sorry, when they send you, okay, when you're working for the Minnesota DNR at, at the very beginning of that uh, career, did, 
yeah. and they send you out west, are you still getting paid by the state of Minnesota to fight no. fires out west? No. no, you become a federal employee, and okay. your rate okay. changes, and your it's called an AD, and it's what I'm back doing now after I've retired. I'm an AD again, which means administratively determined. You know, it's it's a government thing, but you, okay. you're like hired for an incident, and then when that's over, you're let go, and huh. um, very very temporary, and yeah. uh, so I would get on a twenty person crew. And go out west from Minnesota. We go to Duluth Airport, get in them planes, a couple crews, and fly out to Oregon or to uh, northern Idaho. You know, and we'd fight a fire. Usually, you're not very trained. You're not like a Type One crew, so you're doing more of the mop up, and uh, you're not always right on the fire's line edge, you know, hmm. right where the big flames are. That's more of like the Type One crews and hotshot crews and you know some of the more regular so what was what was the change then when you went out west and became a type one which i i take it is kind of the top of the the food chain in that firefighting world oh you get a lot of training you're organized you get 40 hours a week for a period you know until you get an appointment it's only half a year very structured physical Fitness every day, at least an hour of running, pull-ups, push-ups, mountain hikes, hose packs, line digs, running chainsaws. And when you're not on fires, you're doing forestry work with chainsaws and throwing brush. So you're, you're in great shape. You're working hard. And then when you're on fires, you have very experienced leaders, your squad bosses, your assistant crew boss and crew boss, who are now called superintendents, have, you know, dozens of years of experience and are highly trained and, and are really used to being right on the edge of the fire, right where that, you know, tip of the spear kind of thing. And so they take, you're taken care of and you're mentored and trained and brought up and it's very controlled. And, uh, you do a lot of the burnouts and you're, you're cutting line in really rough country and you get to be a very good chainsaw operator. And there's, yeah, it's a very, intense occupation at that level. Um, it, it, did you fall in love with it? I mean, you, you, you obviously didn't switch careers. I imagine there is some turnover and burnout for, from guys for whom it's just not the right thing. What, what did you like about it that kept you in it? I loved it. Um, going back to the first thing, the great thing is I made enough money to support my family and that had been a struggle, you know, and then I got to go to all the most beautiful, remote, spectacular places in our nation and fight fire there. And I liked the act of fighting fire. It was very physical, a lot of adventure. The camaraderie of the crews was incredible. I mean, it was just, hmm. I mean, sometimes you, at the end of the seasons, almost every season, you, you couldn't wait to get away from these people. There was just too much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, you're you're going on rolls. We call them rolls for 14 to 21 days together. You're in a line and like I would be number 17. So I got to know 16 and 18 very well, you know, and hmm. it's, you get to know everybody, but, um, the excitement, um, the energy of a wildfire, the, 
coupled with the beautiful sunrises and sunsets and some mornings waking up at this time of year in Idaho and hearing an elk bugle from where you're camping Mm. out in this little side of a mountain fighting a fire. I mean, it was just what I dreamed of my whole life as a kid. It's what I wanted. I felt like I was called to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've you've already admitted you love stories, so uh, I imagine you've seen some some pretty hairy stuff. And I wonder if you'd be willing to you know tell us a story or two about the kind of stuff that you know you've seen that us normal citizens like me would never see because we're not really in the thick of uh, danger like you are. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, once I went to smoke jumping after Alaska and then after five years in West Yellowstone, I went to Grand Marais for two years during the big blowdown. And then I went back to Missoula smoke jumping now as a squad leader. And in 2001, uh, it was a busy fire year and we had gone from Missoula. We called it boosting, boosted back down to West Yellowstone. We supplemented their numbers with a plane load of jumpers from Missoula. And um, my old boss from when I was at West was the spotter, the guy that kicks us out of the airplane. And we got a, we got a jump request and they decided it was too late at night to go get it. It was just on the north edge of Yellowstone Park. So on the Gallatin Forest, right out of Gardner, Montana, real steep country. And they had a new fire and they called it the Monitor Fire. And so the next morning we get up early, we're going to jump it before it has gets too much wind on it to make it hard. Really steep, rough country, they're saying. So we take off from West Yellowstone. We fly right over Yellowstone Park early, early in the morning, see the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, the big falls. We're going, wow, this is great. We come over, we see the smoke from this fire. And it's a pretty good smoke. I mean, it's it's kind of lazy like they are in the morning, but we're going, boy, that's, you know, that's like 50 acres. And... Um, They said, we only want four jumpers. We carry eight on that plane. It was a twin otter. We just want you to jump in and make a hella spot because we're going to start flying in hotshot crews. And I said, okay. And it was really steep. And there's big old white bark pine, right? Like 10,000 foot elevation for the jump spot. The top of this big ridge, Um, like a, a rib of a ridge, you know, just very few trees, rocks everywhere and there's this one shoot where it's like pumicey like it's uh, not big rocks and there's some white bark pine big gnarly old ones right there and we see a spot where we think we can put a hella spot construct a little flat area for a little helicopter to land so i'm the first one out there in the door i'm you go by your number that's always by the number and i was first in the door so the spotter bill warehane we call him chicken man he starts throwing out these streamers. They're cray paper things that are weighted, and they tell us the wind. And mm-hmm. he drops on it, goes way over this back ridge, where if you went there, it wouldn't be good. You know, rock, <laughs> okay. boulder fields, everything. Oh. And then he drop, counts and goes beyond, drops it, and they land perfectly where they are. And he goes, okay, I got him in there. Are you ready? And I said, I'm ready. He goes, and he's going to hook me up, or I hook up, and he tells me to hook up. And he goes, all right, here's the briefing. You see that jump spot? You can land from there about a quarter of the way down to the bottom in that pumice. It's a super steep angle. If you don't use your brakes, you'll overshoot it and end up in the river and die. And if you go too far the other way over the backside, it's all rocks and you'll die. D 
Do you understand? Oh my gosh. And he's he's exaggerating. <laughs> he's shouting this at you inside an airplane. Yeah. And he's exaggerating, but it wouldn't be good to do either of those. But more or less, he's just looking at me smiling. He's like my age now, or he's like 52. He rookied in 66, the year I was born. And I'm like 32 and out. So he's like my elder, one of the last old guys. And he says, all right, hook up. He goes, I'm going to carry you a little long. And he slaps me out. We're doing single person sticks because it's so tight. And I do everything he kind of told me, and I, I followed it, and the wind was great early in the morning, and I had to use my brakes and my parachute to stall out, so I dropped more, and I landed right in there. And when I landed, I just kept tumbling down, and my, my parachute, you know, caught stuff and stopped me, but it was that steep. It was, like, incredibly steep. And I got out my radio and said, it's steeper than I think. Tell them not to glide slope down, which is where you can't drop enough and you keep going at the angle of the the slope of the mountain so you go to the bottom you know and they put three more of our my friends out one was a brand new jumper that year and then my buddy Hans and Mitch and one of them hung up in a white bark pine and we all got out of there and we were like high five and like wow is that incredible and I looked around and it was like one of the most beautiful places I could ever want to be and I'm top of beautiful ridge looking into Yellowstone Park. And I can look over and there's the Yellowstone River. I think I can remember seeing that. So we ended up taking some dead pine trees, uh, white bark pine, and building a pad out of like log, like Lincoln log style, where you, you uh, link the logs. And then we put rocks in there and they were able to get a helicopter in there. And before we left, we took it all apart and throw it, you know, dismantled it so no future helicopters could but we ended staying up there for a week having grizzly bears come through our camp mountain goats come up and we're you know interested in our campsite anywhere we poured any gatorade out or something they come and lick it and we had to get bear spray there were so many grizzlies around and uh we ended up the four of us keeping that fire in check and it grew to about a thousand acres all along the ridge just the four of us and it was a lot of fun. And uh, they flew us up stakes one night. And, yeah. <laughs> and then at the end, wow, man. they yeah. uh, came and picked our gear up. The four of us took apart the Hellespot. We hiked down the ridge, dove down into the drainage, walked out the trail to a trailhead where a truck was waiting for us, and drove to the local office. And there was our gear. And we got a ride home. And the next day, went and jumped another fire. And so, oh my goodness, those the the adrenaline, and yeah, I mean, I can totally see what you're saying about the camaraderie that would form, because it's, I mean, it's it's got to be similar to being in battle, you know, being being in war with those guys. Well, sometimes it it is. I mean, it it's touch and go, like burning out, and you know, cutting fire line at a real hairy pace, try to keep up to the fire's edge if you're going direct. And it's also just the exhaustion and the grind. You get to be really close through that too. I think a lot of mm. military too, it's the, you know, the, the battles are just moments of incredible excitement surrounded by all this boredom or just the grind. Yeah. And we have that too, yeah. but it's, you're together through it. You're dirty. You're cooking each other cowboy coffee in a little 
tin thing up on the top of a mountain early in the morning trying to warm up around a little fire because it got really cold or you got wet and you just we we don't have hardly any gear when we go in there just little tiny sleeping bags and a, a hooch a little tarp and we sleep under that and we all just have like a tin cup and then they drop this you know a can of spam and then a bunch of dehydrated hmm. food and that's what you live on for three days. And then maybe they'll, after three days, they'll fly in maybe some better food, maybe just MREs. So you get really tight having these experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been in significant danger in any firefighting situation? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think, yeah. But I was well-trained and I was with other well-trained people. So we mitigated it. But yeah, we were in lots of very dangerous situations to other people's eyes. But we're trained to do that. And so they mm -hmm. weren't that dangerous because we have protocols that help mitigate that. Just like firefighters going into a burning building have, you know, training and protocols that keep them safe. We have those too. And so then, it, you know. If we didn't have those, it would have been but, terribly, terribly dangerous. Yeah. <clears throat> there have been some high-profile real disasters, though, with some hotshot crews that have gotten trapped and and people have perished uh, in those. They, I mean, they make headlines when they happen. It doesn't happen that often relative to the number of fires that are being fought, but it is a job that comes with some inherent risk. That's That's for sure. A lot of firefighters get injured at some point in their career. And um, some of the most dangerous things aren't just the fires. It's the driving when you're super tired. You've been working 16-hour shifts for months, and you're driving mountain roads with big vehicles or whatever and switchbacks. It's uh, falling trees because mm -hmm. the ruts, roots burn out or there's a fire up in the tree and the top breaks out right when you happen to be walking by. And, you know, snags mm -hmm. hurt a lot of firefighters. Rolling rocks, we call it bowling What do you mean snags? What do you mean by, what do you mean by, like, yeah, explain what a snag is for people who a don't snag cut is trees a, down. A, a, a snag is either a tree that was already dead or the fire has more or less killed it. It may not even look dead yet, but it would be. And, has fire in it or the roots are burned out. So given enough wind, it's going to tip over or the top's going to continue to burn and then fall out of it. A snag is anything that's not a healthy tree, I think would mm. be the best way to say it. And mm -hmm. as you can imagine, after a fire, there's a lot of non-healthy trees, you know? Um, so, um, you know, we, we cut a lot of them down and that's dangerous. Even the act of cutting down a snag it's compromised. So you're working on a compromised piece of wood, trying to figure that out and cut it down. Or sometimes we used to be able to use explosives. We blow them up. I was a blaster. And I mean, we've wow. jumped into places and blown fire line or blown up trees or hiked in and blown things up. Um, and then rolling rocks and rolling things. We call it bowling for firefighters. If there's something working ahead of <laughs> above you and you're cutting line down below they can or a piece of equipment like a bulldozer or a shock crew above you they can get a little rock going and that can get others going and then they come down to you two three thousand feet below 
or the fire just burned up the organic matter that was holding that rock or that log, and now they come down towards you. So there's all these kind of things. We use lookouts. Um, mm-hmm. If it's, things start happening, we uh, egress and get out of there. Um, we have a lot of protocols and safety things we're always looking. And so you're, you know, being an ADHD guy, I mean, it was great. There was a lot of stimuli for me to focus on. I wasn't like, it was perfect for me because you're always noticing everything, weather, topography, what's damaged, where's your exit. You know, if this happens, where do we go? It's, Hmm. it's really exciting and it Mm -hmm. wears you out, but it's, it's good work. I know um, that you also have opinions about what we've done wrong as a country and, and why we are, you know, to use a cliche, reaping the whirlwind in all these wildfires now. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Because I, 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 it seems to me there's been a major shift of opinion among the experts. And it's slowly kind of filtering out to the general American public that our forest management has been less than ideal for the last one to 200 years. Well, we saw fire as the enemy, and we thought we could conquer it with warlike efforts. And we're learning, and many of us have learned that was wrong, and it's not possible to conquer fire. And, um, you know, it's more of a symbiotic relationship than a one or the other. Uh, America, most of America is a fire-dependent ecosystem. And we've altered huge, huge portions of our ecosystem into other things. Uh, a lot of the prairie is now a farm ground, is corn and soybeans. So that's not fire dependent anymore, at least yet. Um, a lot of metropolitan areas like uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area was a great oak savanna area, and that burned a lot. Tall grass prairie, lots of hardwood oak, some pine, and it would burn either by the indigenous people or lightning strikes burning it. And that kept it, you know, kind of open and great for wildlife and and thus great for the people living there. Uh, The Northern Boreal Forest, white pine, red pine ecosystems, fire dependent, very fire dependent. The upper area, um, the higher ground up where I live and on the North Shore, away from the lake, you know, over the hill where the lake effect wasn't happening as much, uh, they see that fire Low intensity fires are coming every eight to 12 years. So then mm-hmm. you go a hundred years with no fire and a lot of logging and altering the ecosystem by cutting almost all of the pine or desirable mm-hmm. species, whatever it is, and then not having fire and voila, you have very large very intense, very severe fires because they're going to happen. And now with climate change and, you know, droughty, we always had droughty times, but it, this is the drought we had this year up North is off the records for our records, you know, from Mm -hmm. 1894, whatever on, we've never been this dry up there. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, we need to get fire back into the fire-dependent ecosystems 
they're what maintain them. Fire, a good fire will help us deal with bad fires. Where the Greenwood fire hit forest reactions we had done for fuels reduction, which is, you know, some logging and where we could and thinning the basal area down. And we would go in and do some uh, manipulating of the balsam fir, which is all dying right now from spruce budworm, which right. is natural. But there's just so much mm-hmm. balsam. There never has been this much balsam because we always had fires in the past burning them up because they don't like mm-hmm. fire. So you burn an area, you don't get balsam back for 40 to 60 years. Well, a lot of these areas haven't seen fire for since like 1910, 1918. So now they got balsam mm-hmm. everywhere. So where we burned that and the Greenwood fire hit those prescribed burns from two to three to five years ago, it dropped right down. They were able to pick it up, no problem. And it didn't kill all the overstory pine. So it shows that us getting back to how nature, I mean, the science shows us nature worked before, could still get us dividends with these big fires. It's what Hmm. helps us control them. What do you think it will take to change public opinion on that? I don't know. There's, it's such a gray area. You know, smoke bothers yeah. people. People don't like smoke. Yeah. And if you're going to burn, you're going to have smoke. And you're not going <laughs> right, to just have two right. or three hours of it. You're going to have maybe days, you know. Uh-huh. And, and they're like, a nice day in the spring when we're burning. Like, why are those Forest Service people wrecking my holiday or my day with the smoke? Mm. You know, mm. and it's, it's usually 30, 40, 50 miles away even if we do a bigger burn. Um. Mm-hmm. There's concern of losing them, which, you know, we do lose one in a hundred is about our average, which is pretty darn good, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't, I think it's going to be a lot of catastrophic fires affecting people and they'll, they'll be willing to take the lesser of two evils is how they'll see it to start off with. And once we get it going, like the South, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, they burn a ton. And that culture down there is used to smoke and used to seeing trees black for a year or two after it's burned. But some of their lowland country, they burn every three years to knock back the southern rough. And hmm. they've just learned as a culture to live with it. And they, they like it because they can see through the woods. It's healthy. They know there's not going to be a catastrophic fire. So maybe... Maybe in California, northern Minnesota, and Montana, we could get to that point because we have to. Mm-hmm. I think the only way we'll mm-hmm. get there is because we absolutely have to. Because it's unsightly for a while. It's, it's a problem. It's inconvenient. Everything that we're kind of against. As a culture, everything right. we're against. Yeah. 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 Inconvenience, unsightly, you know. Mm-hmm. Not could, yeah, you know, it takes time. It takes, yeah. you know. It, it seems like it, it. It seems like it probably is going to take a significant public education effort to to let Americans know that if we have prescribed fires, that that's the natural way, and and that you know um, professionals like you are able to manage a fire, like a, a fire that's prescribed and planned and burned by U.S. Forest Service isn't going to get out of control. But yeah, I will. You know, people do, oh, my, I don't want to canoe on those lakes in the Boundary Waters because there was a 
a big burn there 10 years ago and it's ugly. Well, it's just, yeah, it's also a different kind of beauty. It's a different kind of forest, right? It's, it's a forest at a different stage in its life than, than the postcard stage where the, you know, the, there's 200 foot tall white pines and. Well, the other thing, Tony, is that a lot of those areas, the cavity, the Ham Lake fire, the Pagami and those, if there had been fire, a couple, you know, a bunch more fire in the last hundred years before those happened, there would still be some pockets of big white pine and red pine. Sure, they'd be black at the bottom, but they'd still be alive there. There'd be more of a mosaic. So we're losing the mosaic Mm -hmm. because of uh, the intensity, because it's like having an inch of gasoline on your floor besides a couple little puddles. You know what I mean? It's going to burn across it all because there's just so much litter. We call it fuel loading from years of not having the only thing that removes fuel loading, which is fire happening. So, you know, when we do this prescribed fire, we're really helping break up the big fires. They hit it. It breaks them up. It takes some of their energy away. They slow down. They don't have that fuel anymore. It's already been burned up. You know, that that's the basic truth or reality mm-hmm. of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and it does look bad for a little while. Um, like where the one of the big burns is like 360 acres right there where the Greenwood hit, where Highway 1 and Highway 2 meet. You know, three years ago, we got a lot of complaints from the everybody about how it looked. Well, now you can't hardly tell it burned three years later, and it had the effect of when the greenwood hit that that portion, it dropped down, and they were able to pick it up. Um, so, you know, that's just that you know the Department of Agriculture, which the Forest Service is under, isn't the Department of Education, and I think we haven't done a great job at educating, but we don't. I have a position for that. We're starting to get some, or they are. I'm not part of it anymore, but it was foresters. It's introverts. You know, I was, I'm not an introvert, but most of my coworkers are. Yeah. Right. That's not why they go into it. Yeah. It's to go talk to, to a be group public of figures and try to, and try yeah. to sway public opinion. Right. Yeah. They're, right. they're comfortable in the backwoods with a few people working hard. And yeah. so, we have to develop a program to educate. Um, hey, finally, the, uh, one thing I'd love to hear you reflect on is, I know you're a person of faith who has you know, all these pastors in your family and you still consider yourself a person of faith in spite of the fact that you didn't become a pastor. Um, how has your... Your well, I'll just say this: your love of beautiful places and um, uh, kind of you know places that aren't often seen by humans, places that you have to parachute into to get to. Um, they obviously have a real draw for you, and and really have a place in your heart. And I'm wondering if you know you've thought about your faith in in regards to that or in connection or intersection with your career as a, a firefighter and being in these outdoor places? Oh, yeah, I, I really do. I mean, I always wondered, was this okay for me to do? Because I came from a very service-oriented family where, 
you you serve. That's part of your faith walk. Your your Christian belief is you you serve. You're a teacher. You're a pastor. You're in medical. Um, and here I am. And so you know, fighting fire is serving to some degree. But I mean, I'm being selfish because I'm just loving my time out there. And so I had to kind of wonder, am I doing what's right? I mean, I had time when I was in my 20s and early 30s kind of reconciling my faith walk with my career. Like, am I just being hedonistic going after this? Um, Mm -hmm. And I just started to believe, no, this is my calling. I can see, uh, I know about fire. I take care of my people that I work with or that I'm the boss of that's I'm a minister to them through my profession. My gifts are to be in this area. And I, I started to really think about the environment and the ecosystem and that ecosystem fire dependent was created by God. And Mm -hmm. before we manipulated it and changed it. And there's something to learn about the cycles, and I wouldn't call it harmony because there's a lot of violence. I hunt, I fish, I even trap some, and those are all very violent things. But life is violent there too. In you know, there's life and death, and that's how things sustain themselves. You know, and so I started really questioning the way I my my faith a little bit on how I had been raised and kind of this. Anglo-Saxon kind of faith. And so I I became a little more mystical. Not that I went way off, but I'm just meaning where the environment God had created, I started seeing that and that started affecting my faith and how Mm. I saw how we could live together and live in the world and how our faith should drive that a little bit. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like maybe the way this conquering of, you know, building, you know, we're the, we're over mother nature, you know, maybe it's a little bit tweaked, a little bit different. Like we're part of it. Sure. We are over Hmm. it because we can destroy it, but, um, you know, other animals probably wouldn't destroy it as well as we could, you know, and we have that kind of stuff. But, and I, I came to believe that my, my ministry was working in fire, was uh, working with those people and with our environment and our communities that are rural. That was my, my ministry. Hmm. And with my, you know, my, with my faith, living by the tenets of my faith, doing that job, I can live out my faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very cool, man. Uh, I love it. I, you know, that's just a great lesson for all of us, no matter our line of work, to consider it our ministry and to then look for the places in that work that, I don't know, that that we can minister and, and help others. And, and honestly, like you're doing, actually care for creation. You know, if you right. actually believe that the creation was created by God, right. then it would seem incumbent upon us to care for it in the best way we know how. And I mean, nothing against the people who suppressed fires for the last hundred years because they thought they were doing the right thing. Right. But we've learned a lot. And well, they, they thought dominion over was having their way with yeah. it. And I think what we're yeah. learning is there's consequences for everything. And dominion, you know, it, maybe it means something different 
Maybe it's, you know, yeah. how did God design it? And then living it within those designs. We have science to tell us how things work, you know, and don't mm -hmm. be scared of that and see the interconnectedness. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. The interconnectedness, that's, that's biblical, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, Timo, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, it's just, I think, a fascinating insight into, you know, a, a profession that a lot of us read about in the, in the newspaper or, or see, you know, we see smoke jumpers uh, or, you know, hot shotters on the newsreels, but we don't really get to hear the insides about what, what it's really like. So thank you for opening that up to us and for, you know, sharing what you've done. And, um, and now you just do it part-time, right? You're mainly in a plane looking at, looking for fires. Is that right? Yeah, I have a, you know, three roles. I can, I go back mainly, I can do others, but I go back and I work about six weeks to two and a half months a year. And I'm not a boss, but I have some skills that can really be helpful to the mm -hmm. organization. I can help give back to the folks behind me who are, you know, stepped in and are doing great things. And maybe I could do a little mentoring. I can use all my experience and be a little help to them. And it's kind of a nice yeah. way to start tapering out of it, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, it's cool on your Instagram feed, getting to see some of those photos from the plane. So I'll direct people to that in the show notes and, uh, yeah, it's good stuff, man. And, and, uh, next time I'm through Duluth, we'll have to get, gra grab a cup of coffee or lunch together. That'd be fun to do. I would like that very much, Tony. Thank you. All right. Hey, Timo, thanks for your time. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.